free kids workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com slash kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost by last, U.S. only. Hello, this is the second Fascinated in a Week. Part of two special episodes to celebrate the second anniversary of marriage equality in Ireland. In the last one, I spoke to three people who campaigned for a yes vote. But in this episode, I'll chat with someone who, in spite of all the amazing things she achieved, she never thought she would find herself happily married with a family. She hid her true self from the world and almost paid the ultimate price. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and leave a nice review on iTunes, as this really helps other people to find it. Also, it would be really great if you would share it with somebody who wouldn't otherwise hear it. If you really like it, subscribe wherever you downloaded this one to make sure you don't miss an episode. I'm Gerard Farrelly and you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated. My guest today is country music superstar Shelley Wright. Shelley spent the first 18 years of her life in Wellsville, a small town in Kansas with a population of about 2,000 people. From the age of four, Shelley was really clear about what she wanted to do with her life. She sang, played piano, guitar and the bugle. But early on, there was something else that she was aware of. Shelley is gay. And this was at odds with everything else in her life. Firstly, she was deeply religious. And secondly, as she was told by another country music star who asked her, You're not gay, are you? You know, that's not cool if you've chosen to live that kind of lifestyle. Fans won't have it. This industry won't allow it. This is country music. It's about God and country and family. People don't approve of that kind of deviant behaviour. It's a sin. Shut up and drive. You don't know what you're talking about. In her autobiography, Like Me, she detailed the prayer that she said every day of her life since the third grade. It began, Dear God, please don't make me gay, and ended with, Please take it away, in your name I pray. Later in her life, as her music career began to take off, she bargained with God. She wouldn't act on her homosexual feelings in return for her career. She wanted her music and to be happy, and to Shelley, being gay just wasn't part of that. I first heard of Shelley Wright in the 90s. I bought a copy of the Manic Street Preacher's Everything Must Go in Freebird Records in Dublin. When I opened the case, the photo on the CD was a monochrome shot of perfectly pedicured feet in high heel shoes, posed as if the wearer was tapping their foot. They were lovely feet, but I was pretty certain they didn't belong to James Dean Bradfield. I got my copy of Everything Must Go, but I got hooked on the CD that they had given me. It was a copy of Shelley's album, Single Wife Female. This was actually her fourth record. She had released two unsuccessful albums, Woman on the Moon and Right in the Middle of It, and then asked to be released from her record contract. 
She signed a new deal and released the album Let Me In and quickly had her first hit, Shut Up and Drive. It was a big hit. She became very famous. The single white female album was the follow-up and was themed around the fact that Shelley appeared to have absolutely no private life. She was hugely successful but eternally single. She was married to her career or didn't have time for a boyfriend but she was looking. This was an album of songs written about the lack and the loss of love in her life. Many years later in her autobiography, Shelley would reveal that at the time she actually was in a relationship during the promotion of that album. When I first listened to the album, I was in the middle of coming out and the lyrics about whether or not Shelley would ever have a family or find love landed in my ears like little bombs. But the album seemed to resonate with everyone who listened to it. The title track went to number one, and if Shelley thought she was famous before. It's my confession. I hope you get the message there's a single white female. Professionally, things couldn't be better. But personally, Shelley's life was filled with secrets. Everyone in her life was kept at arm's length. There had never been a gay country star. Shelley is a heartland country singer and it is all she has ever wanted to be. While making the follow-up record, Shelley forced herself to have a relationship with country music star Brad Paisley. They were the perfect couple and the darlings of the country music scene. Nashville and Brad wanted a wedding. Shelley didn't. At all. In a way of answering Nashville, she and Brad performed their song Hard To Be A Husband, Hard To Be A Wife at the Grand Ole Opry anniversary special, which was broadcast on TV. The song was played to death. Shelley released a new album, which took a different tack. She was in a relationship now, which explained ecstatic love songs like One Night In Las Vegas and the album's title track with the curious double meaning. One of the songs Shelley contributed was Not As In Love As I'd Like To Be. The final song on the album, Deep Down Low, is confirmation, if it was needed, that Shelley's life in its current form had to change. But she kept going. In 2005, she released The Metropolitan Hotel and had more hits. But by then, her life was spiralling out of control. Around this time, an ex-partner threatened to out Shelley to the press. By 2007, Shelley knew that her secret was catching up on her. At her lowest, she decided that there wasn't a way forward for her, and she decided to commit suicide. Wish me away. Wish me away. But she didn't, and after that she put a plan in place to come out to the world. She began to write her autobiography and make a documentary about the secret process of preparing to show the world her real self. The documentary is raw to say the least. Aside from the fear of what was about to happen, the process of writing her autobiography made her question the authenticity of everything in her life. At one point, her editor accused her of pandering to her male audience by being glamorous in her publicity photos. But here's the thing, Shelley doesn't exactly crack a mirror. In fact, she's stunningly beautiful. On her worst day, she is probably more attractive than most. She was named in the top 50 most beautiful people in People magazine. In her documentary, she is justifiably furious at the assertion that her look was out of sync with her sexuality. It's poignant for two reasons. Firstly, because it shows you that just because you are secretly gay, it doesn't mean that absolutely everything in your life is to be dismissed as a lie. And secondly, it's the sad realisation that when you do come out, you are faced with a different set of prejudices. 
coming out isn't easy for anyone. As this process began, Shelley completely isolated herself. The only thing she did was sit in her pyjamas and write songs. She began to work with a producer to make an album. The songs she was writing were dark and angry, and in my opinion, some of her finest work. The album was provisionally titled Notes to the Coroner, after a great song she had written. It's catchy and quirky, but the message is clear and grim. Who called you? Who found me? Who had to spread the news? I hope it wasn't my sister. I wrote it down. There were songs about wanting to get away, and songs where she was crushingly hard on herself. The record label were concerned with the themes of the tracks that were coming back and sent a message asking for something positive and hopeful. Half annoyed and half amused, Shelley saw their point, so she wrote a song called Something Positive and Hopeful and sent it back. It didn't make the album. The rage and the anger and the grief that Shelley was channeling into this record only made sense to the record's producer when Shelley said that she wanted to play him something, but she couldn't be there when he listened to it. So she emailed him the song, Like Me. And who's gonna end up holding your hand A beautiful woman or a tall handsome man There's no On the 4th of May 2010, Shelley released the album simultaneously with her autobiography, Like Me. The record had been retitled to Lifted Off the Ground. She appeared on the Today Show and said, I'm gay. She was lauded and lifted shoulder high. It was a very brave move. Rosie O'Donnell, Oprah and Ellen scrambled to put her on their shows. Finally, what everyone had suspected but no one had any evidence of, stars of country music can be gay too. It was heady stuff. But what was the net effect? Country music is led by radio, which is controlled by fans. Overnight, Shelley's record sales halved. The small amount of support she received from Nashville was in private. No one jumped to stand with her. That year, the Nashville benefit for her charity, Reading, Writing and Rhythm, failed to sell out for the first time in 10 years. Some stars that played it didn't say they were playing it on social media, and some refused to appear in the press room. But then there was the reverse. Trisha Yearwood, who hadn't been booked for the show, emailed Shelley and said... I'm coming. Before she came out, Shelley left Nashville, her home since she was 18 years of age, and she moved to New York City. She has continued to gig and tour and has set up a second children's charity, Like Me, to support young LGBT people. Last year, Shelley released her first album in six years through what became the biggest ever country music Kickstarter campaign. As well as losing some of her fan base, Shelley has also gained a lot of new fans. Her new album, I Am The Rain, was an opportunity to change things up a bit. It's a very different record to what has gone before. It is a mellow Americana sound, but Shelley's voice is unmistakable. The album has become the most critically acclaimed of her career. I spoke to Shelley a couple of months ago. She had previously had to postpone the interview because her children were both sick at the same time. 
That's the happy ending to the story. After all the pain and the secrecy and the fear, Shelley is now married and she's the mother of twin boys. And she is very, very happy. This is Shelley Wright. Garoud, I love it. Nice to meet you, Garoud. <laughs> oh, it's lovely to meet you. Um, it, it, thank you so much for doing this interview. Well, I'm happy to, and I apologize for having to, um, had to cancel before. And then today, the craziest thing, my wife is out of town. Our nanny text this morning, she can't make it in. And then our school, the boys' school said, no school today, the heat is out. <laughs> so thank God for my wife's mother who came over and she's got the boys at the park. And, and uh, But I, I was like, there's no way I'm canceling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's no problem at all. First of all, you've got a new album, which yeah. is absolutely, it's magnificent. It's such a lovely album. It's a little bit different to anything you've done before. It's so mellow. It's mellow. Yeah, my last record, Lifted Off the Ground, uh, was kind of very wounded and you know, um, you can feel a lot of pain and maybe some anger in it. And uh, this record is, uh, it's not that there's not pain on it, because um, there's a song called Pain. Yeah. Um, but it's just, um, mellow is a great word to describe it. And it, it's, you know, hopefully people are absorbing it in the way that I'd hope they would, which is end to end with headphones on and listen to it as a narrative rather than, you know, I like that cut or that cut. Uh, I think it works best as a body of work. And it's structured a bit differently because normally like when you think of the country album, you think of, you know, uh, here's the kickoff track that gets everyone right in right. there. And and I think, um, I, I can't remember, I think the, the first quick song on the album, it's about track five maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, was that deliberate? It was. And it was at the direction and uh I guess, wisdom of Joe Henry. You know, I love sports metaphors, Garoud. There's a temptation when you're making, I don't know, it's my eighth or ninth record, there's a temptation to kind of go back to your old golf swing. You know, okay. you step up there and and you have, you're well-intentioned to try the new golf swing that you know will be better for your shot. But when you get up to the tee and everyone's watching, you sometimes want to just go oh screw it let me go back to it I know I, I know I can hit the ball this way um and so in the studio uh the whole process really just from casting the songs and the players and the way on recording day there's a temptation to just kind of go back to what I know and I was brought up on commercial country music that's the kind of music I've always made and when it comes to sequencing you start you put the first track is the up-tempo single that ev you think everyone will kind of get hooked into. Uh, and Joe didn't want to do that. Joe said, let me, if you really want to deliver a different record that will show growth, artistic growth, poetic growth, um, then you have got to let me create the sonic landscape. And that's why we opened the album with a very kind of melancholy track called Inside. It's such a stunning opener to an album. Before we move on, we have to mention the fact that there was a review that compared it to Carole King's Tapestry. I know. I know. I got that review right as I took uh, walked on stage at a show in New York City, and my manager came back and held his phone up in front of my face, and I read it, and it was... Oh gosh, I had a heart palpitation, and That's nice. uh, I, I, yeah, it, it was really nice in that you know Carol King, obviously, <laughs> it's Carol King, but um, Tapestry is a record 
for all ages, for all fans of music. It is widely known as kind of the gold standard of serious uh, record making. And just to have mine mentioned in the same uh, ink and paper, uh, in, it was pretty good, pretty great, <laughs> pretty great. Can't, still can't describe it. The process for recording this record must have been so different because the last record you made lifted off the ground. There's so much pain, anger, all of this stuff going on because of uh, obviously what you were going through at the time you were making your documentary Wish Me Away and you were about to come out. Um, So contrasting the the two experiences, um, it must have been so different. Uh, Very different for the the reasons you just stated. uh, When I made Lift It Off the Ground, um, Rodney Crowell produced it. So Rodney has one foot still very entrenched in what Nashville does. But then he's also got his own kind of thing that he does, which has distinguished him as one of the greatest singer-songwriters in American music history. Um, And so he was able to kind of infuse some of those sensibilities into that record. It might be interesting for you to know that we started that record. We were halfway, we were in the middle of making that record when I decided to come out. We were in the middle of making that record when I came out to Rodney. So there was a lot of emotional stuff going on and uh, a lot of emotional housekeeping to do. And I think it showed up on the record in a way that was, um, I don't want to say reasonable for me, but in a way that my, the fans that I'd had for a long time, weren't, they weren't taken aback too much by what happened on the record. Um, Whereas had I gone from the record before that to I Am The Rain, I think it would have been like super shocking and uh, maybe it wouldn't have been seen in the context that it is being seen in. So Rodney, making a record with Rodney was um, super huge for me as an artist um, and also really huge for me as a person. Rodney and I, beca- he became one of my very best friends and he's always been a mentor, but he, he showed up for me in every way on that record. The the process of uh, coming out you made it you made an incredible documentary and I I mean I'm not the first person to say it's incredible because I think you've won I, I think about twenty awards <laughs> at this point for that documentary. <laughs> it it was well received and that was um, I think that was kind I don't know if you can hear that beeping in the background that's no, my that's my dryer. Um, it was well received and it was kind of not a shock to me because I knew that the filmmakers were good film filmmakers. I knew that I wasn't in the way, you know, part of my agreeing to do the film was that they wouldn't ask me question or that they wouldn't ask for my input about editing or they wouldn't say, who do you think we should talk to? I just said, if there's a story to tell you guys go find the story. I'll tell you my from me, from my position, but I just didn't want to get in the way of it. Um, And I knew that it was interesting, but um, the way that the filmmakers, Bobby and Beverly, were able to shape the narrative in a way that told a universal story. I I guess I thought we were making a film about a country singer coming out, and it's really not that. Those happen to be my details, but it's really a story about the journey that everybody takes as they try to live an authentic life. And it's not about LGBT, I mean, it is, you know, about my uh, coming out, but it's really hard to be yourself. I I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. I mean, you know, I was watching the Oscars last night, as I'm sure the rest of the world was. Um, Moonlight 
one best film. And it's about, you know, it's a, about an, a black LGBT coming of age story. And there's a reason it won best picture, not because there are that many in the world having that, that experience, but because they tapped into how hard it is to be authentic and how painful it is when you're not. And the power of unleashing one's real potential when you are authentic. And so I think Wish Me Away really, um, really was way more successful than I thought it would be. And I still get mail every day. I just read an email this morning from somebody that actually said that film saved their life. And that, that... that's not lost on me. It's really powerful. Because for me. that was that was your intention. I mean, you you talk so vividly uh, in the movie about when you about when you decided to come out. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think as the human condition is revealed to all of us that there's never one thing, right? It's never one thing. You know, you ask somebody in the in the show business, how did you get discovered? Very rarely is it just one person saw you it's a it's the aggregate all of, of all of these um kind of important uh bricks in a foundation and so my my decision to come out came after the straw that broke the camel's back i mean i and i write about it in my in my memoir uh, like me as well in a little bit more detail than the film goes into but i'd really i'd really kind of painted myself into a corner I worked very hard at making sure no one ever knew that I was gay, and to to a great deal, a level of success, mind you. I I was I pulled it off to some degree. Yeah, I mean, uh, you were hugely and, successful. Well, I, I mean, I had some success, and but in my mind, my greatest success was keeping that story hidden, keeping that truth hidden, and and then of course it all imploded, you know, because these. This plan that I had concocted of I'll just stay hidden, no one will ever know, music will be my love, that was a deal I cut you know, with the universe, with God, when I was 19. Um, I really don't think contracts that you make, that you enter into when you're 19 should be legally binding. No. <laughs> because, because I was speaking for myself, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and when you're 19, you don't really appreciate the value of what human connection and love and authenticity will ultimately be in your life. So I just, you know, I had a long relationship in the closet and it crashed and burned and, and then it just occurred to me that that's going to be my life. After that one relationship, I realized if I ever find love again, it's going to be in the closet again. And, you know, you, when you're in the closet, you bump into a lot of other really, really sad people. Yeah. You know, and nothing grows in the closet, so, certainly not love. And so, you know, I had my rock bottom come to Jesus moment, as we say here in over here in America sometimes. Um, and I I just remember Well, I, I wrote about that night very clearly. I I was about to end my life, frankly. I mean, there's no there's no way to to get around it. I had a nine millimeter gun in my mouth, not because I was gay but because I didn't see a way out of this trap I had put myself in. And for whatever reason, I didn't pull the trigger. And the next morning, I started to listen to the voice that I identify as God. You know, some people may identify it as 
you know, other things. I don't, faith, my faith practice is important to me. So I, I heard it as God saying, okay, when are you going to listen to me? Uh, it's, are you ready to do it my way? And I was so tired and so defeated and so scared. Uh, I was finally ready to kind of do what I knew all along I needed to do. I knew all yeah, along. I know. That's you know? the thing about coming out is that you, you know, you know what's going to happen at some point and you're, you're kind of avoiding yeah. your eyes in the mirror for so long. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, are you, are you gay? Yeah. 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 I am. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, but, and, and you're right. I mean, for all of us, it's um, you all. You always know at some point you're gonna have to, you know, you're gonna have to tell your story, and you put it off as long as you can, and try to mitigate the damage it's doing to your mind, body, and spirit. But at some point, you gotta pull up your big girl pants and uh, and be authentic. Do it. And what, do it. What, what's so interesting to me uh, is your album Single White Female that was an album that I found in a records shop a long time ago but it was around the time that I was coming out and dealing with all of that stuff but to me there are so many songs on that album that I identified with and, and really really spoke to me at that time one of the ones that you wrote is Picket Fences I completely identify with that as, as somebody that was wondering am I ever going to have a family am I ever going to find love and setting the table for five at five Only means more dishes to load What's so great about picket fences? I thought I was being really sly and I thought I was being... Uh, I, had I realized how many people would read into that what you read into it Maybe not assuming that I was gay, but that you would identify with it as a gay person. I would never have put it on the record because that, that would have scared me to death to think that I may be showing my hand a little bit. So I thought I was being sly enough with the metaphor and the, you know, the turn of a phrase. I, I didn't realize how much of myself I was revealing. But in, in fact, it's exactly what I was doing and it's exactly what I was feeling at the time that I wrote it. And, I, you know, the day that we had come back from the lunch break in the studio, I came back a little early before the band and I picked up a guitar that was in the control room and I was just playing the song and Buddy Cannon, who produced that record, happened to come back into the uh, control room and he had the mics on and I, he listened to that song and he hit the talk back and said, Shell, what is that? And I, I said, oh, it's just something I wrote a while back and he said uh we're gonna cut that we're gonna cut that today and that was Allison Krauss came in and sang on it and it was just kind of a perfect uh a perfect situation to where I never would have played it for him it's a lot of people's favorite on that record and maybe maybe mine too yeah because there's a couple more even like uh like she went there for cigarettes uh and unknown now I know unknown you didn't write but but I mean they were songs that yeah. I was like, I know exactly what's going on there. <laughs> Unknown is, uh, again, it was written by uh, the fantastic uh, Gary Burr and I believe Amy Mayo. Is she a writer on that? I think Ooh, so. Maybe, yeah. Um, but when I heard it, it just spoke to me. And again, I I thought it was so clever. You know, yeah, I, thought, I know, in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and there's a reason why that song just devastated me. And yeah. it's one of my favorite songs I've ever recorded. So go figure. I know, and the same even with the the, the album after that. The uh, the one that always stuck out for me was "Not as in Love as I'd Like to Be." 
Which I wrote with a guy I was dating. I know. <laughs> I only realized that today because I was like, she did write that, didn't she? Because I really, I yeah. get where that's coming from. And <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, right when you just, I was so big for my britches thinking I knew what I was doing. I mean, I, you know, I guess I was destined to come out, right? Yeah. And, and thank but, God you did. I think, but I think what really, um, what really is illuminating about this discussion is that Music says things for us that we often can't even voice ourselves. Yeah. And and I think that's why people who don't make music are so drawn. That's why music is so important to humans because it, you know, not everyone can sit down and write, you know, a melody and a lyric. That's a, it's a gift that only a few people in the world get, you know, but by the grace of God, thank God. Um, but People are really that people are drawn to music to help them explain themselves to themselves. Yeah. And I think that's the power of really great songs. After you made like you three years making that documentary, which must have been yeah. like when you're leading up to something like that, the stress and when it does come out, you're on Good Morning America and you're on Oprah. That was all so hugely positive. So what was country music's reaction? I didn't go on social media right right when I came out, and I was off of it before. I, I, my team and I made a conscious decision that you know there was no need for me to see any negativity that might be out there, and there was some. I mean, there was a lot of positive stuff too. Um, but the fallout from Nashville, it was just a little weird in that um, the Nashville industry, uh, everyone was really quiet. Nobody had anything affirming publicly to say. Uh, now, I did receive a few private emails and texts and phone calls from fellow artists or fellow people in the industry that were excited for me. A lot of them came out to me. I mean, it was uh, it was so cool. That was so great. And um, but it was disappointing in that in that there just wasn't public affirmation, uh, you know, uh, in a broad stroke. But I, I, I wasn't expecting it. I, you know, this was 2010 that I came out, seven yeah. years ago. And you look at, you know, still it's not, it's, it's still a little bit taboo to be gay. And, well, it's still a lot taboo to be gay in country music. Um, and that has so, to change because you're, you're not going to be it, the last. But uh, it is. It's changing. It is. I mean, Ty Herndon, my buddy, came out um, a couple of years ago, let's see, 2015, I think, in the fall. Um, the good thing about being the first is that there will never again have to be another first. And, okay, so and, it's always going to be easier. I, yeah, it's always going to be easier, um, and which I'm proud. I, I was really incredibly honored to come out the way I did to come out when I did and to come out the way I did. I received a little bit of, um, a little bit of negative um, stuff floating around out there. Uh, I wasn't on social media, but friends of mine would on, on occasion do a screenshot of somebody's tweet or Facebook. And, and it was, you know, disappointingly, people I had worked with, people that I had, you know, been in rental cars with promoting my record or tour buses and, um, you know, the, the things they would say was, would be like, uh, she did this for the money. I don't know what money they're oh. talking about. She just needed attention. Um, 
she's uh, she's exploiting the fact that she's gay for gain. Well, let me just tell you this. How clever of me. How clever of me to have moved to Nashville in 1989, hid the fact that I was gay. <laughs> Become for, a superstar. <laughs> for 20 years, get a few hit records, and then drop it. How clever and strategic of me. I mean, it's so silly, but... Um, but but then again, that was all completely obliterated by the scores and scores and maybe even hundreds of people in my industry who have sent me really beautiful notes over the years. I even I got a super beautiful note maybe a week ago from a guy that uh, he's a radio guy. I've known him for years. And he said, he said, Shelly, I just wanted to say, first of all, shame on me for waiting seven years to write this note. But, you know, what you did was. That took courage, and I applaud it. You know, it's in- it, took, it took some it, people some a while. It's incredible. I mean, the like the documentary is so powerful because I think one of the things that happens when you are gay and when you do live, I suppose, in you know a liberal place and you know a place where it's just second nature to to yeah. for there to be gay people, uh, is that you do forget that there are other people in other places struggling. Oh yeah, and yeah. Yeah. And, and even and, powerful people like you, because you had a lot of hit records. You were powerful in the industry, I suppose, to some extent, that then that you can struggle with that. Yeah, I, I have to say, I think before I came out, I thought that maybe my coming out was harder for me than other people. Um, and then, you know, because I was publicly known, because I had fans and uh, this this um, mis- this was crazy for me to think that. It took me about, you know, a month or two to be out on the road promoting my book and the movie and talking to people and receiving mail from people. And I really understood very quickly that, oh, it wasn't harder for me. It was just different. It's yeah. it's very it's difficult for everybody. And, you know, you said a second ago to be living in liberal places where pe- where it's easier, easy to be gay and it's expected that they're. I, I disagree with that. I, even in New York City, um, it's not easy to be gay. It's easier, um, and you find more places where you feel comfortable. But we have got to, you know, we've got to realize that being different in any way, it yeah. makes you feel vulnerable. Um, but then again, those of us on the coasts and enter in entertainment where we feel pretty largely re- um, received and respected and affirmed. We have got to remember that you drive one hour outside of a major metropolitan area and you are in a red state. You are in a place where there, I promise you there's a kid in a church pew on Sunday morning really struggling w- about his or her spiritual jeopardy. And, um, you know, we've got a long way to go. We're making progress and I'm proud to be a voice of uh, yeah. in that progress. But we've got a long way to go. And how did you find that you went from you went from coming out to activism? How did you find that transition? Well, it was by design. Uh, before I came out, w- when I decided to come out, and I, you know, it took me three years to write my book and put my team together and make sure that I could come out well. You know, I often say I could have tweeted, "Hey, y'all, I'm gay," but I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to come out well, and what I what I mean by that is I wanted to tell the very nuanced story of what it really is like to be a gay person, uh, to be a person who has to step into their authenticity. And so I, it took me a while to 
to put that team together. And part of that plan that I had, that design was that I would, I knew I wanted to be an advocate. I didn't just want to come out and say, okay, now I don't want to be the poster child for gay artists. I wanted to be, I wanted to, to, because why come out for me, what it added up to be was why not use my voice? If I have a chance to use my voice to facilitate dialogue in places where there isn't dialogue to make a young kid in Nebraska know that there's someone else like him, you know, I wanted to do that. So the advocacy component of my story and my journey was well into my design of coming out. So it wasn't hard to do. It was it was what I sought to do. You must have been so gratified by the Kickstarter campaign for your for your new record is one of the biggest. It is the biggest country music Kickstarter. I mean, that must have been great. It was a great feeling. And it was, um, you know, when we talked about doing it, I, I told my manager, I don't know, that sounds like asking for money. And he said, for, forget the old business model, that music industry is changing like crazy. He said, you know, this is a, you should do this. This will be really fun. And so in my mind, the goal was to get funded, right? So that was the benchmark of, it, will it be successful? We'll get funded. But, but we got funded and then some, but what was the best part for me was seeing fans show up and write to me and on the message boards there and say, you know, I saw you in Baghdad in 2003, or I saw you with Tim McGraw in 1996 at the Nebraska State Fair. Um, it was a great reminder of the arc of my, my musical career. It wasn't just LGBT fans that were funding that. It was, it was they, and it was fans who'd been with me since 1994. And that was really, it was heartwarming, really, really powerful for me to feel that. And it's great to know those fans came with you. I mean, that must be so, like, one of the things that I was wondering about when I was watching your documentary was, did you watch the Dixie Chicks documentary? And was that, did you get a warning from that? Or did you, how did that make you feel? You know, I didn't see that film until after it had been released. So I watched it maybe a couple of years after it had been released. And to me, um, yeah, there were some similarities. It's My story has often been kind of paralleled with theirs about, you know, backlash from country music. But, you know, they're, they're different, and they're different, and I'm different. But uh, believe me, I knew I was not, I knew some of this wasn't going to go well, you know, when I yeah, prepared yeah, of to come out. I mean, otherwise, if it if it weren't a compelling story, if there weren't some risk in my coming out, filmmakers wouldn't have said, we want to make a feature yeah, film about this. Yeah. Random House Publishing wouldn't have said, we want to publish your book. Um, so, um, you know, so obviously that I, was all baked in the cake. I do really love your argument that you have with uh, Victoria Wilson from Random House about your look. I think that was so important uh, argument to have yeah. because it, it, it almost uh, what was happening was they were trying to erode everything about you uh, yeah and, and and you know there's enough time and distance between that experience and and now I think I have a really you know obviously Vicki Wilson is um, she's an icon in publishing she's one of the most prolific successful editors in publishing and I was lucky to get to work with her. I learned so much about writing because I wrote my book myself. You know, I didn't have a ghostwriter. And I credit Victoria with, um, she taught me a lot. 
but uh, but she did, you know, she's a human too, and we're all yeah. flawed. We're yeah. all flawed critters, and she fell into a little trap that, you know, I I that really has probably had a, nothing to do with me, if the truth mm. be known. It probably had a lot to do with um, her self-image, what she you know thinks of, you know, maybe some issues she's she needs to deal with about profiling people or stereotyping or it was a great moment it really was a great moment it it was a really it was a moment that was rife with uh stress and anxiety for me when it happened because i had this i was feeling very vulnerable as it as it were you know i was preparing to come out i'm pouring my heart out into this book and she you know when you write a book uh your editor really ends up being your therapist your teacher your sister your best friend um, and to be, I, I think I felt really blindsided by the fact that she, uh, was, wasn't hearing me. She wasn't hearing me when, when I was saying I'm genuinely a feminine gay country singer. I, I mean, this is yeah. just really, really who I am. And, and although I had been putting on, as she called it, I had been putting a lo- on a lot of different costumes and masks um, figuratively in my life to fit in being feminine wasn't wasn't one of the masks I was wearing I it just felt good to me it felt right to me that's how I feel comfortable when I go to an event I like to wear a dress that's that's how I feel like I'm me and so it was um, you know I think a lot of people really uh, really attached themselves to that moment in the film because I think it was so, it was a curveball, and it was, uh, I think a lot of people have felt that feeling before. Yeah, I think it was really, I think it was really, really important. Um, yeah, and she la- doesn't la- like me, by the way. Victoria Wilson doesn't, she, that made her really mad. I really? Think she yeah, that made her seeing that, uh, I guess she saw that part of the film, and she, you know, she made her really, really mad. Uh, maybe that I would say, you know, yeah, F you, good. Vicky Wilson. Good. <laughs> um, but I, you know, if, you know, if I were a a writer by trade and wanted to write more books for Random House, perhaps I would have asked the <laughs> filmmakers to leave that out of the film. But they even asked me, "Do you care if this goes in there?" And I said, "Hey, I, it happened. You know, that was a part of the journey, and it, I think it's important." I think I think it was great. Um, their life has changed so much in, I suppose, the seven years since you've come out. You've you're you've married. You've had twins. Yeah. Um, did you ever really believe that you would be in the position now? I suppose with your career and with your personal life uh, both going well, like when you were back writing Pick Offenses? That's a really important question. Um, you know, sometimes you, you dream about things that you hope might come true. But usually the things you dream about, there's a grain of possibility in them. This, what I have now, was so impossible in my mind, I didn't even dream about it. I didn't even allow myself to imagine that this could be something I'd have because I knew it couldn't. I knew there was just no way that was ever going to be. So my life, there are truly days that I awaken and it still lands on me in the most beautiful way. I'm out. I have a beautiful, lovely wonderful wife to live my life with and we have these gorgeous boys and I don't have a big fat secret anymore 
it, it, it's been seven years since I came out, but I can tell you there are moments when I'm just giddy that, oh my God, I made it. That is such an important message for everybody that is just waiting for the moment when yeah. they come out. And it's incredible. Um, thank you so I get much, a, Shelley. I'm still emotional. <laughs> I'm still emotional. I am too. <laughs> oh, I think it's, yeah. It's, it's being authentic is, if I can close with this, being authentic is the gift that keeps on giving. And it still reveals itself uh, at certain times, a holiday party or what have you, a moment. It, it, it just still, it still is a little wrapped up box with a bow on it that I open and I go wow this is I get I get what why people love living life because this this is fun this is good stuff That was the fantastic Shelley Wright. Shelley's new album, I Am The Rain, is available now. You can get it on iTunes and her documentary, Wish Me Away, and her book, Like Me, are also available. If you want signed copies, check out the store on her website, Shelley.com. She is at Shelley Wright on Twitter and Facebook, fascinated at headstuff.org if you want to get in touch with me, and I'm at Garod Farrelly on Twitter. If you happen to be in Ireland this weekend, I'll be at the Cat Laughs Festival in Kilkenny, and also previous guest Naomi Coleman will be playing her first gigs in seven years in Whelan's in Dublin and Connolly's in Lepp in Cork. So break a leg, Naomi. There'll be a new episode soon. Remember, if you like this one, like, share, rate, review. Thanks for listening. The secret to getting a good interview is to find common ground with your guest. That's how life goes, right? Yeah, exactly. God, especially when there's kids in the mix. I have a cat. Well, uh, it's not far off. A cat <laughs> and uh, identical twin boys. It's about the same thing. So you know what I'm dealing with over here then. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Free Kids Workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month, from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident, future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost by last, U.S. only.